as we approach Advent. So this morning we jump into the book of James again as we continue our study on uh, what it means to become a mature and a complete Christian. The book of James, as we have seen so far, is about learning how to, to navigate through life. Okay? There's trials, there's pitfalls, there's potholes, there's car wrecks, there's people going through red lights. And, and how do you navigate through life without falling into temptation? How do you navigate through life and have the wisdom of God? Human wisdom is not going to cut it. We need the heavenly wisdom, the wisdom from above. And we're going to get into that exact thing today, actually, a little more. How do we have that, that wisdom from God, that wisdom from above? How do we pursue that? And what does that look like in your life and in my life? We've seen so far that we need to be prepared for trials and we need to surrender ourselves to God. James called himself a slave, a servant, a doulos. He's a bond slave of God. To submit, to rejoice, rejoice in these trials because they're making us mature. We're not going to stay little babies. And we've got to desire God's way and his wisdom. We've got to pursue God's way. We saw that we should be praying and praising and persevering. And last week we saw that the perfect gifts come from the perfect giver, God himself. And we're going to talk more about those gifts today as well. One of the things you have to realize is that this short little letter, just five chapters, the way it's uh, organized in our Bibles today, is a letter that was written by James, and it was intended really to be read all at once. And so there, there's a lot of uh, connections between what we call the different chapters. They wouldn't have really had these chapters. Um, and so these different connections and the themes that build upon each other, and he goes back and he, he reiterates themes and he further explains themes, and we're going to see that today because uh, today we're actually going to cover a huge chunk of text. Um, but I'm going to try to uh, boil it down for you. Because in reality, what you often find in Scripture is that you can uh, elucidate a couple of main points, and then a lot of the rest of it is really explanations, examples, illustrations, etc. It's a hammer on the point. Um, the, the main points are, are usually pretty simple in just a few of them. The book of James has um, been really vilified. That's probably not even too harsh of a word by some people, including Martin Luther of the Reformation. You know, calling it a book of straw. And many people didn't even consider it worthwhile to be in the scriptures. The thing, though, is that quoting from William Barner in his excellent commentary, he says, When you realize, however, the thorough way in which Jesus' teaching permeate the writings, we could conclude that after the Gospels, James is actually the most Jesus-centered book in the New Testament canon. In other words, what he's saying is that James refers or alludes so frequently to the words of Jesus that it is that Christocentric or that focused on Jesus. The thing is that in order for you to know that, you have to know the things that Jesus said, which means you've got to know the Gospels because that's where Jesus' sayings are recorded. Um, similarly, we're going to see some Old Testament quotes and allusions today. And in order for you to know that, you would have to know the Old Testament Bible uh, as well. And thankfully, in the modern uh, era, they often, in the Holman, for instance, they'll put it in bold print or in maybe other uh, translations, they'll do it a little bit differently. But they kind of clue you in hey, this was uh, back in the, the Old Testament part, you know? And so this morning, <clears throat> we want to continue this study. Um, and we're going to go at a pretty good clip. So bear with me, stay with me. And um, there's a little bit of note space on the handouts I gave you. But almost every point that James makes is grounded or illustrated um, from the words of Jesus in this book. And so it's probably 
uh, one of the earliest New Testament books written. This morning, we want to look at the topic of pursuing wisdom from above. If you recall from a couple of weeks ago, we talked about contrasting the wisdom from above or the heavenly wisdom with human wisdom. And human wisdom, as I mentioned, is not going to cut it. Human wisdom is going to put you in a ditch. Human wisdom is going to get you wrecked. Human wisdom is not going to get you in the kingdom of God. And this morning, we need to drill down. So look with me at James chapter 1, starting in verse 19, and we'll go through 25. My dearly loved brothers, understand this. Everyone, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For a man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save you. But be doers of the word, and not just hearers, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, he goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, it is not a forgetful hearer, but one who does good works, this person will be blessed in what he does. James, in this, this portion of scripture, wants us to understand <clears throat> some things. And he starts off with, with the tongue, the temptation that we have with our tongue. So my question is, are you a listener or a talker? Which, which one are you more apt to do? Do you listen or do you talk first? I think that oftentimes we talk before we listen. And James gets to the text here and he says, listen, we need to reverse that. You need to change what your, your automatic um, habit might be. And you need to instead look at God's ways. God has a different path for you. He says here that you should be... Quick or, or slow to listen? Which one? Quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. See, anger doesn't bring about God's righteousness. So he didn't say it quite this way, but what is James saying is the goal for maturity in your life? You should have righteousness. But anger isn't going to bring that about. And why is it that there's this burst of anger? And how is this burst of anger showing itself in your life? It's showing itself in your life by your tongue because you're too quick you're too snappy with your tongue and he's saying put the put the brakes on red light here we gotta slow down this is not going to bring about what god wants in your life this instead is human wisdom but we don't want human wisdom we want heavenly wisdom and so which of the two is going on in your life which do you revert to most readily and most quickly what are you characterized by in the New Testament, James uses the words uh, make and do quite a bit. In fact, if you look at this quick little chart, you'll see <clears throat> that James' Acts and Romans are, are where it's mostly found. And you'll see that James has the bulk of the usages. And I just throw these up there only quickly because I want you to understand some of the emphasis that James makes in his book. He also uses the word uh, work more than half of the occurrences in the New Testament. So works and doing, putting these two together, is what James is talking about. And so what, what we come to in James here is, <clears throat> you wouldn't think of it normally this way maybe, but it's another temptation that we have. You see, we dealt with trials in the very beginning, and that one, we dealt with temptations that come from evil desires. And now he's given an example of these, and he's talking about the tongue. And so um, I think what we need to 
put into our heads is the idea that James wants us to practice the word. When he has these, these words of working and doing and there should be fruit, which we'll get to in a little bit, in your life, all from the word that comes in, okay? God's word comes into us and it's supposed to do something. He wants us to not just listen. He wants us to practice the word. And so this morning, when you think about pursuing wisdom, what does pursuing wisdom look like? Because often it's nebulous. You know, James told us if you lack wisdom, ask. But don't be doubting, okay? You've got to ask believing that you're going to get it. And what is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to navigate through life God's way and not blow it. So how do you do that? Well, the only way you're going to do that is if you understand how God thinks and how he wants you to respond. So you need some insight or you've got to get inside God's mind. And how do you get inside God's mind? God's word. That's how you get inside God's mind. Because he's revealed it to us. He's given us a portion of what's in his mind, in his word, his revelation. So pursuing wisdom from above, you practice the word. So James talks about the word in this passage quite a bit. The implanted word, being doers of the word, being hearers of the word. He says the perfect law, which is another phrase for the word, of freedom. And then back in 118, he says the message of the word, or he says the message of truth, but the message there is the same word for work. So it's the word of truth or the message of truth um, by which our life in Christ was begun. Furthermore, in the first part of chapter 2, he refers to uh, the law, which is related to the word, obviously, in chapter 2, verse 9, and in 10, and then the law of freedom in 2.12. And he quotes three times from the Old Testament in 2.8.11 and caps it off by referring to the law as the royal law in 2.8, all of which we're going to unpack. My point here is James is heavy on the word. The word is very important. So we need to practice the word. The word is nothing short of the revelation of the God of the universe. Without it, we would know nothing of him. With it, we can come to know him intimately. We learned a couple weeks ago that we are, we are born again or born from above. And how does that happen? By the word of God, he says. So the word of God is this active thing. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that. It can get where nothing else can get. It's active and it's growing and working in your life. It's birthing something. Now, let's revert back again. What do you birth by yourself? You birth something, remember? The temptation passage. In your human wisdom, your evil desires birth what? Sin, which leads to death. Yeah, you birth death. That's what you give. Okay? You birth death, but God birthed life. Okay, so through his living word, he brings about life. Proverbs 29, verse 18 is an often quoted passage for visioneering, but it's actually not about leadership and vision the way most people use it. The passage actually is, without the revelation of God, the word of God, people cast off restraint and they go amok. I think that's pretty much how the NLT has it. The Holman is, is similar. It translates it as, without revelation, people run wild, <clears throat> um, but the one who listens to instruction will be happy. And so oftentimes, I can't even count the number of times I've heard Proverbs 29, 18 used for you got to have vision, you got to have a plan for your life, visioneering, leadership, all this. That's not what it's about at all. It's totally misconstrued and out of context. It has to do with without the revelation of God, without the word of God in your life, you cannot live. Without the word of God in your life, you cannot have the wisdom of God. And without the wisdom of God, you can't properly navigate through the life that God has for you. Psalm 119 verse 11 tells us that we should hide in our hearts God's word so that we don't sin against him. So God's word is active. God's word does something in your life. We're supposed to practice God's word. Okay? By practice, I mean do it. I chose practice because 
all my other phrases started with a P, okay? So you got to do it, all right? You practice it. You do it, all right? <clears throat> now, you receive the word in humility. <clears throat> Verse 21 tells us that we receive <clears throat> the word in humility. You have to allow it to do its work in you. You don't fight it. Recognize that it comes from God, and it is to sit in judgment over you. You don't sit in judgment over God's word. Now, there's entire seminars and groups of people and organizations um, that get together, the Jesus Seminar from like the 70s, and they would go through the Bible, specifically the Gospels, and there was these guys sitting around a table, and they would read each verse, and then they would vote. I really think Jesus said that. Eh, he might have said it. Nah, he definitely didn't say that. And literally, they would go through the words of Jesus in the Gospels, where if you have like a red letter version, they're going through the red letters, okay? And they're deciding whether or not Jesus really said them or not. And so, now, I, I realize there is a place for like understanding how the Bible got here and, and all the, the textual criticism issues that are related to that and why some books are in the Bible and some books are not in the Bible. But... <clears throat> Are we really, at the end of the day, the judge over the Bible, or is the Bible the judge over us? The Bible's the judge over us because it's God's revelation. It's God's word. So we have to come, James tells us, we humbly receive the word of God. Okay, We've got to humble ourselves, which reminds us of the very first verse that James calls himself a slave. That's a humbling position of Jesus and of God. When the president gives an order, whether you like it or not, if you're a servant, what do you do? You receive it. You don't reject it. You say, yeah, send it back. No, I don't want to do that. Yeah, what happens to you then? Yeah, you're gone. You're fired today. Back in the day, you'd have your head chopped off, right? So when the commander-in-chief issues an order or his words come to you, you receive them. James says you receive them with humility because you're the servant, not the king. With humility. So rather than, that, rather than shooting off at the mouth, okay, James is saying that you take this idea of humbleness or humility and we let the word come in and do its work in us so that it will grow and mature us so that we will then have the righteousness that God desires. Now, the, the converse of that, okay, is that because of your wrong attitudes, your evil desires, your unrighteousness, and your anger, which does not lead to God's righteousness, you block that. And that is not going to produce anything good in you. That is unclean. That is how the Old Testament would have viewed that. And so that is not going to produce in you what God wants it to produce in you. So he says, slow down. Bite your tongue. Listen. Let God's word do something in you first before you try to do something with your words. As God's word gets inside you and changes you, then when you speak, after listening to God's words, what do you think will come out? Something more in line with God's word and God's way and God's wisdom. If you just rattle off at the mouth, what's most likely going to come out? Yours. Human wisdom. So we must first humble ourselves and sit under God's word. And remember... Okay, the word is a good gift from God. Okay, last week we talked about every good gift comes from God, from the Father of life. The word is one of these good gifts. The word is one of those gifts that birthed you, spiritually speaking. This is a good gift from God. He has given it to us. And so not only do we receive the word with humility, receiving it as a good gift of God, 
but also we have to reflect on the word. So you receive it and you reflect on it. What do I mean by reflect? I mean, think about it. I mean, ruminate on it. I mean, study it. I, I mean, meditate on it. I mean, let it really get inside of you. Reflect on it. So a 60-second devotion isn't going to cut it. Now, you could, in all fairness, if you took that 60-second thought and ruminated on it all day long, now that could produce some serious righteousness in your life. But you would have to reflect on it throughout the day. And that really is what God wants us to do. Deuteronomy 6 tells us that what we're supposed to do is all day long from the time we get up from the time we go to bed, everything we do should be surrounded by and, and a thinking process related to God and his word and his ways. And so if we're doing that, that is going to produce that righteous life in us. It's going to bring freedom in Christ because of his truth. So why is it do that, that people in persecuted countries have such joy and freedom? It's because they're reflecting on the word and they're letting go. They're letting go of what? They're letting go of the world. Our problem is we're still holding on to the world, people. They're letting go of the fears of the world. They're letting go of the foolishness of the world. They're letting go of the constraints of the world. And because of that, they no longer fear the world or what the world can do to them. That's why they can face death and say, it doesn't matter, kill me. It's all game. Because they've completely let go of the world. The challenge for us is to let go of the world. Let God's word Come in, receive it, reflect upon it. Why are we doing this? Because we're supposed to practice it. You can't practice it if you haven't received it and reflect upon it. See, this is a part of the problem that the teachers have in school. So, you know, we give an assignment or, or we teach something or we thought we taught something, and then we want, you know, students to do something with it, but they're clueless. Because all they did is maybe hear what we said or maybe write something down on a piece of paper, but they were thinking about something else the entire time. So they're not reflecting on it, so they can't practice it. They can't do it. We have to do this with a desire to act. When he says, he looks into this, the mirror, okay? And we all know what mirrors are for, all right? You all have mirrors probably in your house. Paul, I mean, James wants us to look into the word, to receive it, to reflect upon it, because we have a desire to act upon it. When you're reflecting on the word, it's because you're going to do something with it. You are going to practice it. Mirrors give us a chance to see things that we otherwise might miss. Why do you even look in a mirror? Just think about it. Why do you look in mirrors? Okay. Want to see yourself? What, what, what are we looking for? To see how good we look? Yeah, we do do that sometimes, don't we? Okay. Yeah, we might call that vanity, right? Yeah, Richie, what are we going to say? To clean yourself. Okay. Isn't the primary reason we look in the mirror to make sure nothing is out of place? Isn't that the primary reason we look in mirrors? And so I was thinking about this, and I was wondering. Now, I don't know this, so, so don't say Kevin said this is for fact. But will there be mirrors in heaven? Because think about it. In heaven, everything is in its proper what? Place. So yeah, your hair will never be out of place, Peter. Probably isn't anyways, right? 
Yeah. So no, no more hair out of place. No more anything out of place. Everything is in its proper place, right? So what, what's the need of, of mirrors for? So James is saying, listen, if you go look in the mirror, okay, and then you see your face is a mess, you got toothpaste all over your face, um, and you don't wipe it off, then what was the point of the mirror? It's pointless. You didn't do anything with it. You saw and did nothing. So in this fallen world where we are supposed to be growing in maturity to become more and more like Christ, okay, each day, day by day, you know, Christ has started this work, and he's going to continue it until the day that it's fully completed and we become like Christ. But until that time, guess what? You and I all have things out of place. That's why we look in the mirror probably every day, sometimes multiple times a day, right? So this idea of looking in the mirror, though, James takes it, and he says the mirror is the what? What's the mirror? It's the word of God. The word of God is the mirror. Because you and I are deceived. Look back at the text of, of James 1 and James 2 and see how many times James talks about being deceived. We are deceived because you and I think that we're good. You and I think that we're okay. And Jesus comes in and James comes in and says, no, you're not. Not even close. Look in the mirror. And we're, and we're like, oh, yeah, I look good. I look good. No, no, no. Wrong mirror. The Bible. Look at the Bible, okay? You're not good. And he's going to show us how we're messed up. And so we've got to look with a desire to act because not only are we going to practice the word by receiving the word, by reflecting on the word, but we're supposed to respond to the word. Okay? That's the end goal. You respond to the word. If you're not responding to the word, then something's wrong. Then, then you haven't understood what this is all about. You receive, you reflect upon it, and then you've got to do something with it. You don't just walk away. So... If you're not going to do anything after you look in the mirror, you might as well take the mirrors out of your house, right? Unless you just want to look at yourself because you think you're cool, right? But the point is, God is saying we're not there yet. Delayed obedience is what? Disobedience. And partial faithfulness is what? Unfaithfulness. And so if you don't respond to the word, then what is it? Yes, it's sin. To him that knows to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And so James is laying this out. Listen, I'm giving you the word. I'm telling you what's got to happen. You've got to respond to it. You need to do something about it. And so he continues. Look with me now in, in verse 26 and 27. He says, if anyone thinks he's religious, oh yeah, you think you're good, right? You think you're a good Christian? If you think you're religious without controlling your tongue, then your religion is useless and you deceive yourself. Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this. Look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. So you're thinking that you're doing all good. And James is saying, yeah, but she got that wagon tongue, man. And it ain't doing so good. And so... This tempting, deceiving tongue that you have going on <clears throat> is wrecking your life. How many of us would be better off if we just didn't have that tongue? No, I know. It would be a little hard to chew your food. But, yeah, see, you're getting the point. You're realizing. Yeah, I say some things I shouldn't be saying with my tongue. Yeah, exactly. Slow down. Red light, okay? Green's for go. Red's for stop, right? Just stop. Listen. Why is someone's religion worthwhile and, and someone else's is not 
Well, the tongue, James is saying, is, is such a point of temptation for us. Why? Because it springs from these evil desires in us. Well, why do we gossip? I mean, have you ever thought about it? Have you ever stopped and asked yourself, you know, why is it that you want to share what happened to somebody with somebody else? There's a reason. You don't just do it because you do it. There's a reason. It comes from an evil desire. You're wanting to spread dirt about them. You're wanting to put down their name. You're, whatever. It's coming from evil desires. But what has James told us? Evil desires bring death. Okay? Are we in the business of death? If you're a Christian, you're supposed to be in the business of life. Jesus brings life. And so you don't want this in your life. So James is saying, hey, yeah, the tongue is a big temptation in your life. Okay? But if you would ask God for wisdom, he would give you wisdom in this situation. And if you would sit yourself under the word of God and begin to practice what the word of God says, then guess what? That tongue wouldn't get you in so much trouble. Instead, as James will talk about later, you could use it just for blessing people instead of cursing people also. So James here tells us that one of the signs of maturity is someone who can control or, or bite their tongue. This demonstration of the pursuit of wisdom is a major indicator of one's maturity in Christ. So you can kind of ask yourself, all right, I want to see, how mature am I in Christ? Well, let's look at the words that come out of your mouth. Do they line up with Jesus or do they not? And the more they don't, well, the more immature you are, right? So, ooh, ow, that hurts. Yeah, okay, fine. So what's the point of a doctor? The point of a doctor is to give you a prognosis, right? So fine, now you know the prognosis. What do you do about it? You looked in the mirror, right? You saw. Now what are you supposed to do? What? You saw in the mirror. Now what do you do? Change it. Fix it. Put the hair back in place, right? Fix that tongue, right? If you don't, then you're like the guy that James talks about that you walked away from the mirror and you did nothing. That'd be a fool, right? There's no point in even looking. That would be a worthless religion. We easily deceive ourselves and are thus reminded again of how important it is to constantly come under the light and the scrutiny of the scriptures. In 119, James had said to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. He comes back to that same idea here. Why? Because we're so quick to anger, quick to gossip. In the first century church, which James is writing to, this was going on. That's why he's writing it. He's not just making up things to write about. He's writing because this was going on in the first century church. Yeah, 2,000 years later, we still have the same problem. All right? And the solution is still the same thing. Get under the word and practice what is preached in the word. So this often comes over time in our lives. So we also need patience. Okay? So slow to be angry. You need patience also for one another. So bridle the tongue and look after the needy. That's what James says. But as it was then, so it is today, that rather than looking after the needs of the needy, we're often more interested in looking after our own evil desires. See that contrast? There's people that have a need, the poor that he was just talking about, but instead of looking after the needy and taking care of their needs, we are looking after our own evil desires. It's kind of like the needs and the wants thing, you know? But instead it's our evil desires. So why do people want to be around celebrities? Why? Because they're famous. Why else do people want to be around celebrities? Yeah. Money. Other people would be jealous. Status. Right? What? 
Okay, so these are reasons, right? So we want to be around these people. So we think more highly of these people. Okay, right? James jumps in and says, whoa, watch out for deception. Don't be corrupted. Don't be stained. Don't be poured into the jello mold of this world. Stop thinking like this world. We've got to be countercultural. Jesus' system works counterculturally. Okay? And so we move now to chapter 2. Can you believe we're plowing through this as fast? Chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. He says, my brothers, don't show favoritism. Oh, what do you mean don't show favoritism? I know you just told me you'd like to be with the rich people, right? Why do you like the rich people better than the poor people? They had the same problem back then. And he says, don't show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying this. He's saying, okay, listen. Favoritism goes this way. Following Jesus goes this way. You can't follow Jesus and have your favoritism. Two different things. For example, okay, so that's the point, by the way. If you want to know, like, chapter 2, what's the, what's the point here? It's right there, verse 1. The rest of this, example. For example, a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor man dressed in dirty clothes also comes in. So who, who's going to give up your seat for which person? Who's going to give up your seat for the, the smelly poor man? And who's going to give up your seat for uh, the rich, nicely dressed man? Right? Who's hoping the rich man's going to put a whole bunch of money in the pot over there and, uh, you know, bless us? And who's hoping the poor man is somehow going to bless us? James saying, okay, you got favoritism. All right? Why? Because of how you're thinking. Why? Because you have the wisdom of the world instead of God's wisdom. Continue on. He says... If you look with favor on the man wearing the fine clothes and you say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor man, sit over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool. Footstool, what's that mean? That, that's low, right? Low position. Remember what we learned about back in chapter 1? What's going to happen to the people of low position? They're going to be high. They're going to be exalted, right? So careful what you're doing now, right? Or you say, sit here on the floor by my footstool. Haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now remember, who's supposed to be the judge here? You or the word? The word's the judge. And he says, you're a judge with evil thoughts. He says, listen, my dear brothers. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you dishonored that poor man. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? So he's saying, why are you giving favor to the people who are actually oppressors? Causing injustice. Don't they blaspheme the noble name that was pronounced over you at your baptism? What's that mean? The noble name. That's the name of Jesus. You get baptized in the name of Jesus. He's saying these rich people are dragging people into court. They're oppressing them. They're causing injustice. And they're blaspheming. They're mocking. They're ridiculing those who follow Jesus, your king and savior. Indeed, if you keep the royal law prescribed in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself... You are doing well. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. <clears throat> Whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. The law of freedom is the word of God, right? For judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. For mercy triumphs over judgment. So in this whole 13-verse section, okay, there's one main point. It's found in verse number one. Don't show what? 
partiality or favoritism, okay? And so <clears throat> while you are practicing the word, partiality is prohibited. Partiality is not to be part of it because God is impartial. God does not show partiality. He judges by the same standard. The standard found where? Where's the standard found? In the word, which is why you need to know the word, okay? So that if you are going to judge, you'll judge by God's standard and not by your own human wisdom. And so here you've got two views of the poor. Okay? You got the human view, all right? You got the human wisdom, and then you got the heavenly or wisdom from above. Our treatment of people can be prejudiced at times by their outward appearance, making distinctions, all right? Now, I don't think that we have to flesh this out too much because I think that if you would simply reflect upon yourself, you know that you do this because we all do this. We treat certain people differently or we have these thoughts that we have to suppress because we see a situation or we see a person that's dressed in a certain way and we immediately have a certain set of preconceived notions or ideas about them. Okay, If I say the word thug to you, you immediately get a picture in your mind. If I say hobo, homeless, you immediately get a picture in your mind. Now, <coughs> James is saying, we got to correct that because that picture you just got in your mind is not the same picture that God has in his mind. And he's saying when you show favoritism like that, he's saying you're breaking the law, not the Florida statute, God's law. What? That's not one of the Ten Commandments. Well, maybe it is, and you just didn't realize it. So you've got these two views of the poor, these, the human and the divine, and now we're being challenged to sit under God's word and say, wait, is my wisdom wrong in this? Do I have worldly wisdom? Am I viewing people like the world views them, or am I viewing them like God views them? Because if you're going to be mature, then you've got to view them like who views them? God. Right? If you're going to practice the word, then you've got to view them like God views them. So partiality is prohibited. It's got to go. It doesn't bring about God's righteousness. So <clears throat> in their culture and in ours, we still have this thing going on. If you looked in the, in the scriptures, you would see that in the New Testament, poverty is talked about um, a decent amount. But you would see again, where do you think it's talked about most? And James, of course, right? And the word poor, which is related to poverty, half of the occurrences are where? In James, of course. And the word rich, where do you think more than half of the occurrences are? In James, of course. Did you know that James had so much to say about these things? And so James is getting into our heads here and our practices, and he's saying how you view the rich and the poor is got to be in line with how God views them. Too often we make distinctions just based on what we think another person might be able to do for us. That's what we do with the rich guy, right? And let's be honest. We're a small little church, right? A millionaire walked in the door. What are we hoping he's going to do? Put money on the table or in the bin, right? Or write a check or hand me a check, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And what's God saying? God's saying, so a guy walks in the door... And the first thing that you're concerned about is you might get something from him. Where are we focused? Ourselves. And God's saying that's the wrong motive. That's the wrong perspective. God's saying a guy walks to the door. I don't care if he's rich or poor. 
What's the first thought that we should be thinking? Glad that he came. Hallelujah. Where is he with God? How can we help him know God and live God's plan for his life? Not how can he help us, give us something. How can we help? How can we serve you? Remember James chapter 1, verse 1. James is a slave, a servant. That's, that's the premise of the whole book. That we are servants of the great king. So this shows how evil our motives are and how they affect the way we treat others. Appearances can be misleading. And our own desires, the Bible says we don't even know our own hearts. The heart is so deceptively wicked. And so we're wanting stuff from people we don't even know. Instead of, as we sang earlier today, God's grace should be sufficient for us. In Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18, here's what we read. He says, you must not harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke your neighbor directly, and you will not incur guilt because of him. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but what? What's that say at the end? What are you supposed to do? Love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Now, why does God say this? Because each person, okay, we've talked about this before. You didn't know I was going back to Leviticus, did you? But hey, it was in James, so blame him. So God is saying, all right, that each person is your neighbor, okay? In the Gospels, a, a guy tried to get away from this, and he asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? And so he told them what we call the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Anybody's your neighbor, okay? So if someone needs something, you're supposed to do what? You're supposed to help them. That's correct, okay? And so here James is saying, you got a rich guy coming in, you got a poor guy coming in. They're both your what? Neighbor. neighbor. You should love them both as your neighbor without partiality, without favoritism, without an inside evil desire and motive that you want to get something out of them or abuse them or use them. Keeping in mind that God takes those who are low and brings them high. And he takes those who are high and brings them low. And you will bring nothing that you have with you into God's kingdom that you got from this world. So when you get that in perspective, is the rich man any more important than the poor man? No. In fact, James goes another level with it. <clears throat> he actually, now there's some debate about how to interpret this in the book of James. Because he talks about the rich and the poor quite a bit. There's more coming in future chapters. But <clears throat> James makes some very harsh statements about the poor, about the rich, I mean. And throughout scripture, the gospels, etc., we see that the poor come into the kingdom. We see that the poor in spirit enter into the kingdom. We see that the rich are, are often chastised even by Jesus. Now, being wealthy in and of itself is not a problem, okay? That's not a sin issue. Job was super wealthy, okay? Abraham was wealthy. But when we're looking at here, James is saying, hey, listen, take a look in your world, okay? Who does the oppressing? It's the rich people, okay? So instead of favoring them, if anything, you should be favoring the underdog and the poor, and you should be doing something about the injustices that the rich are imposing upon those underdogs, the poor, all right? Are you all with me on this? And so even today, let's be blunt. Who would we rather go have lunch with? A rich person or a homeless guy in the street? 
truth of the matter is, homeless people do often smell. <clears throat> Ask my, my pastor friend that's with them every day. Sometimes it can be unbearable. But <clears throat> that's just a physical. I shouldn't say just as if it, it doesn't matter because it is there. It's right in our faces. It is in our presence. But how are, how are we to God? Doesn't our sin stink to him? Aren't we, you know, a smelly stench, especially when he first takes us, when we first get saved, and we're just in a, in a pit of sin, and he takes us and washes us and cleans us? And so that same good news that we find in Scripture that we're supposed to be bringing to others is what has to be going on. And so James says you've got to stop this, this partiality, this favoritism. This cannot continue. This idea of loving your neighbor is all through the Scriptures. It's, it's through the, the early first century. It's in, obviously, the New Testament. It's everywhere. To complete God's will for his people means that more than obeying an isolated commandment from Leviticus 19.18... It means living in conformity with what Jesus himself, who quoted this also, insists lies at the center as the controlling core of that love, love for your neighbor. So James quotes Jesus. Jesus quotes Leviticus. It's all through the Bible. This is the heartbeat of the Bible is loving God and loving your neighbor. If you really keep the royal law, what's the royal law? The scriptures, God's instructions, okay? The law of the kingdom of God who is coming. The law which according to scripture... Okay, and scripture as it has been magnificently fulfilled in all that Christ has taught and affected, and it is rightly summarized in love your neighbor as yourself. If you really can keep that, you're doing well. In other words, it appears that James, even while quoting it, simultaneously uses a number of gospel categories that remind us of Jesus' own instruction on the centrality of the first and the second commandments. Jesus, if you go back and read the gospels, was very strong on this idea they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? And he said what? Love God and love your neighbor. And so partial faithfulness, partial faithfulness is not going to cut it with James or Jesus or God. <clears throat> he has some pretty harsh news for anyone who judges others' behaviors without considering how they themselves are going to be judged. Keeping most of the law is not going to be enough. We have this idea that I have in previous sermons and times past, I, I have said I, I disagree with and I don't think it's accurate biblically, but we have this idea in our culture that there's different parts of the law. And so <clears throat> it's a slippery slope because pretty soon then we're accused by people that don't understand the faith of picking and choosing what we're going to um, adhere to from the scriptures. But as um, Dr. Barner says, again, relating to the one lawgiver, he says there's only one lawgiver, a point that he's going to later declare firmly in James chapter 4, verse 12. So there is one whole law, not just a bunch of individual laws or parts to it. And so as James tells us, you can't say that you have followed the law, fulfilled the law, or are you faithful to the law if you broke it in any part. And so you say, well, I haven't murdered and I have not committed adultery, but you haven't loved your neighbor. Therefore, you broke the law. You see this? So you look at the Ten Commandments and you're like, yeah, yeah, I think I can keep these, keep these. Oh, but, but you haven't because you haven't loved your neighbor. How haven't I loved my neighbor? You've discriminated. You have partiality. The poor are the rich, the rich the poor, whoever else. Therefore, you've broken the law. And if you broke the law in one place, you broke it in how many? All of them. So you're a lawbreaker. So you're guilty of everything. <clears throat> 
He says, basically, at the end of that passage, okay, that you have received mercy. Therefore, you should reciprocate that mercy. Now, if you understand the scriptures very much at all, you realize how much that you fail to faithfully follow them. If you want God to show you mercy, then you should start by showing others mercy. Jesus told a parable about this in Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. Jesus further discussed the issue while having dinner at Simon's house, not Simon Peter, another Simon, as a woman poured out her love for Jesus through fine oil or perfume. Why did she do this? Why would she pour out some expensive perfume on Jesus? Because she was demonstrating the extravagant love that she now felt because God had showed extravagant love to her. What do you do? When you receive extravagant love, you reciprocate it. You pour it back out to others. That's what's going on here. So James is saying, listen, that's why you, you treat your neighbor with such love, because you've been shown such love by God himself. Otherwise, you're going to face the judgment of God. Do you want to face the judgment of God? So we're told in Scripture that too much has been given, much is required. If you go back and read that parable, in the parable, the, the king forgives the man that owes a whole bunch of money, and then he, for, he refuses to forgive uh, debt for a little bit of money. Well, when the king finds out, he takes the guy back and hauls him off and throws him in prison because he did not reciprocate what he had received, the mercy. So then we look at James 2, verses 14 to 23. In James 2, 14 to 23, which is the last passage that we're going to look at today, but it ties in. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and he lacks daily food, and one of you says, go in in peace, keep warm, and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith from my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. Foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works faith was perfected or made whole or made complete. So the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness, and he was called God's friend. What is all this about, and how is this connected? <clears throat> because not only <clears throat> do you need to let the word of God come in and sit in your life, and you've got to reflect upon it, you've got to uh, practice the word, but you need to produce fruit. So if there's two main things that you get from this morning, okay, it's that you need to practice the word and produce fruit. And really, they're the same thing. Because if you do one, you'll have the other. It's just two different ways of talking about it. So how do you produce fruit? When you pursue wisdom from above, you practice the word and you produce the fruit. If you look <clears throat> at the example that we have here, that what James says is basically that fruit is evidence. Okay, Fruit is the evidence of what's going on in your life. Okay? When Jesus went to the fig tree and it didn't have any figs on it, but it should have because it showed signs of spring and budding, he cursed it. It looked like it should have something, but it didn't. Okay? That is what, if you apply it to the Pharisees that Jesus condemned, uh, hypocrisy. So you look like you're supposed to have something, but you don't. You say you're a Christian, so you should have a love of neighbor, but you don't. 
You say you're a Christian, so you should be impartial because God is impartial, but you're not. So James is saying these things have to line up. Words or works. Remember, the tongue. you got to watch that tongue, right? Because James says that this whole idea of fruit as evidence in words and works is that when God does a work in your life, it should manifest itself. Okay? We've talked in the past about the spirit and the fruit. The fruit of the spirit is supposed to flow out of your life, and it will naturally unless you block it somehow. And so if you were to look at uh, Matthew 3.8 or uh, Luke 3.8, both of them talk about uh, producing fruit that demonstrates repentance. Okay? This is not a new idea. John the Baptist said, oh, okay, you're coming because you are demonstrating or you're saying that you want to demonstrate repentance because God's kingdom is coming. Okay, so I'll baptize you, and then you better bear fruit that shows it. <clears throat> it got to a point in early Christianity that uh, many churches started separating baptism from salvation. One of the confusions we have still to this day is about baptism and salvation. Okay, baptism doesn't save. Salvation saves. Baptism shows the world that you have been saved. <clears throat> but in the early church, and in the gospel, as you can see this, it was pretty much done simultaneously. All right? They were as close together as possible. They believed, and then they were baptized if there was water there. Or as soon as they got some water, they baptized. Now, <clears throat> the thing that gets confusing and that people want to pit James against Paul is over this faith and works thing. All right? But there's no confusion to be had. They're talking about two different things. What James is talking about here is he's saying you can't say that you're a follower of Christ, that you have faith, and your life doesn't look like it. He's saying it's got to match up. He's saying that demons say there's one God. Now, when he's saying there's one God, that's like a quote from Deuteronomy 6 again, um, the Shema. There's one God and only one God in Israel, all right? Yeah, the demons even know that, and they shudder. But do they live their life as if there's one God? No, they don't. They don't surrender. They don't submit their lives to God. Okay? They don't practice the word. They don't live as if Jesus is king. In fact, they're the opposite. They're in rebellion against him. So, yes, they know there's one God, but their life does not manifest the fruit of that belief. Okay? That's why they're not, quote, Christians, if you will. All right? So, James is saying that you and I have got to get these things in line. So, <clears throat> you meet somebody and they need help. I'm like, yeah, I'd love to help you, um, but you know, I'm just going to pray for you. And you can see from the illustration on the screen that the problem is not that they don't have anything to help them with. They do. They have clothes and food, and they need clothes and food. So, what is the Christ-like response if someone needs clothes and food and you have clothes and food? Give them. Okay? So, um, I think it was actually Thanksgiving Day. We were coming back from um, was it your mom's. So, we, we needed to um, stop by the store, which, honestly, they shouldn't even be open probably. But anyways, we needed something for the next day because we were going to another family member's house. Um, oh, back from Cindy's for your mom's. Yeah. So, so, we needed, I don't know, salad or something or other. Anyway, so we stopped in at the neighborhood Walmart. So before we got into the store, um, we were confronted with a gentleman that was in the parking lot. <clears throat> he wanted um, he wanted some change, but I didn't have any change. Offered, I, you know, I said I could buy him some food inside if he wanted food. So um, and then we passed another person. So I passed two people going into Walmart. This other woman was in a wheelchair. 
and she didn't say anything to us except hi, but um, on the way out, um, she also asked um, for some assistance. Now, I don't normally have cash with me, and so I don't normally give cash. If somebody needs something, I'll offer to buy them food or point them into a resource place or, you know, whatever. So, but it's Thanksgiving Day, so I get in there, and so I'm going to buy this guy something. Um, he, I think he, he told me he wanted chicken wings or something. So I went to the deli section. This woman had been working all day. She was so tired. She wanted out of there. I felt bad for her. But anyway, so I ordered some stuff for the guy. Um, and then on the way out, this other woman needed help. She said she needed uh, $9 to get into the Salvation Army um, to spend the night there. So I, um, I looked at my watch, and I'm like, this quick the fuck. Now, I know a little bit about the Salvation Army because Pastor Skip sends people there all the time, etc. Um, Salvation Army, it is $9 a night after your first three nights. Those first three are free. But then it's 9 bucks a night. Um, but people start lining up at 4 o'clock to get into Salvation Army. It's 6 o'clock, and she's on this side of town. There's, there's no way she's getting in. And so I said something, and I said, well, it's already 6 o'clock. I was like, um, you're not going to be able to get in now. And so um, she said she has a case manager there because she's in a wheelchair, and so she has special exceptions. So I'm like, okay, maybe she does. I don't know. And so anyways, um, I did actually happen to have, I think I had $7 in my wallet or something. So um, I gave it to her so she could have her $9. Now, it was Thanksgiving. And literally, so I don't normally give cash. I already told you that, right? Um, but here, here's what I was thinking. I was like, okay, it's Thanksgiving. I don't know if these people are, are real or not, right? I mean, the people are real, but, you know, if they're, if they're playing me or not. Um, but it's Thanksgiving. I just got done being fed at a family's house, right? As much food as I wanted. Um, they should eat at least, right? And have a place to sleep. So, <clears throat> as far as I'm concerned, it was this right here. I need food. That's what one said. I need shelter. That's what the other said. I had the means to provide food and the shelter, so I did. Why? Because I think James compels us to. I think that we are compelled. When you look at Scripture, Dr. Varner has a, a short um, a YouTube clip from a, a class that he was teaching somewhere. Uh, he teaches at uh, Master's um, College and Seminary, um, the school that John MacArthur is president of. And um, he has a clip on there. And he was talking about poor people and immigration, etc. And he didn't really take any questions back. Um, but he made a couple of comments. And you can't see the students' faces, but you can just imagine them. Because he, after he made some comments about um, how the scriptures, okay, this is an example of what we're talking about here. Sitting under the scriptures and letting them change you. Okay, after studying the scriptures, all right, in James and elsewhere, about what God says about the poor and about immigrants and about loving your neighbor, he had no choice but to change what, what his views were on the subject. And so he, he was talking about how we have to love them and these other things. And the immediate response of people is pushback against that. Yeah, but what about this? But what about this? But what about this? But what about this? And, and here's what I want to challenge you on. Yes, the government has to make you know, decisions, political decisions, da 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 Okay, um, but as a Christian, I have to love my neighbor. Like, there's no two ways about it. So you got to learn how to love your neighbor if you're going to be a Christian, and that's what James is getting at 
that's the heart of it. Otherwise, okay, you're deceived, okay? And without wor words and works coming through, okay, you're deceived, and basically you're a battery that's unconnected, all right? You need to be connected <clears throat> and doing something with what God's called you to do. You're a dead battery. You're sitting on the shelf. You're unconnected, okay? A battery has juice in it, all right? It's got electricity in it. It stores electricity. But if they just sit on the shelf and never get used, then they're what? They're useless. They're pointless. They were made to store energy to be hooked up to something so that it would do some work. You were made, okay, to be charged by God to do something for him. James' point is not that work saves you. It doesn't. His entire letter says the opposite. Faith saves you. James' point is that if you don't have anything in your life that shows that you actually follow God, then you don't. It's dead faith. It's not faith. So incomplete faith is not faith at all. So James is simply saying with this entire passage, he goes on further to talk about Rahab as well. With this entire passage, he's simply saying that like Abraham and Rahab, in fact, put that slide up, like Abraham and Rahab, who demonstrated their faith by their works, by their actions. They showed it. They demonstrated it. How so? Well, when it came to Abraham was willing to give up his one and only son, his most important possession or thing in his life. Okay, When it came to Rahab was willing to believe the word about the nation of Israel, what God had done, and taken the spies. What's the result? Abraham is called the father of faith. Rahab is in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, right? Why? Because they demonstrated their faith by their actions. Okay? If you don't have actions that show your faith, if there's not fruit, okay, being produced, then there's probably no faith. Faith produces fruit. No fruit, faith's lacking. So when you think through this and you reflect on, on the summary of, of what we've looked at today, okay, we covered a lot of material, but it really boils down to two points. Okay? You're going to pursue wisdom. You practice the word and you produce fruit. And while you're practicing the word, partiality is forbidden and partial faithfulness is all as well. Because partial faithfulness is not faithfulness. Abraham didn't have partial faithfulness. Abraham, yes, at times he messed up and he blew it. But when you get to chapter 22 of Genesis, he demonstrates, okay, at the high point of his life, that his actions, the fruit, matches the faith, okay? Rahab demonstrates that the fruit matches the faith. The question is, does your fruit match your faith? Or do you have rotten fruit? The fruit's got to match the faith. And so when you practice the word, you will produce fruit. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for your word, thanking you that uh, it is a mirror, but it's also a surgeon, and that it's done its work this morning. I pray, God, that we would allow it to change how we think about people and about your plan, that we would allow it to conform us, transform us, to be like you and not like the world that we would learn what it means to be people that love our neighbors, people that are not partial, do not show favoritism, but instead we follow the ways of, of Jesus. 
the ways of heavenly wisdom and navigating our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.